then we will have Bible study. So we'll have it next week and the following week, and then we won't have it during Holy Week. Okay. All right, so the parable that we're going to be taking a look at today is from Luke chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, did we put Bibles out? I always forget to do that. And Carol always does it for me. Well, some of us don't have the book. I mean, like I don't have my book. I do have a Bible, though. Now, in fact, the Bible, though, actually is funny because I didn't read... I didn't read it in my English Standard Version until literally this morning when I read it to Fort Chapel. Because I read it from the, well, from Kenneth Bailey, and then I looked at the Greek. And I didn't realize that he, he this, the translation here is kind of way different than what it could be. So that's kind of interesting. So, uh, and I didn't look at the NIV, so that would be interesting if anybody has the NIV. Anyway, so we're just going to read it again, starting at... Chapter 12, verse 35 and following. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may, be, they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. I think that's what Bailey just threw 39. I think Bailey has, right? Oh, just threw 38. Scratch 39. I read verse 40 in chapel, too. but um, Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Kenneth Bailey kind of just deals with these three verses, 35, well, 4, 35, 36, 37, and 38. And I, I was like, kind of, well, kind of cutting it off there. It's a little more hard to understand if you had the next two verses. So, you know, making it easy on himself. Jan. That's right. No, actually, in fact, uh, when Vicar, I asked, did the Vicar teach last week? Pastor Brzezik. Well, I asked the Vicar where we were because he always knows where we are. I have no idea where I am. And uh, I said, what chapter are we on? And uh, whatever chapter it is. And it, the title, The uh, Parable of the Serving Master, I was like, well, what was that one? And he said, Luke 12. And I was like, is that about like the, uh, you know, eschatology, end time thing? And he's like, well, yeah, it's around there, I think. But he didn't really know either, so we both had to look it up. Like, oh, yeah, we know this one. Not always, no. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Um. Yeah, so anyways, the, uh, yeah, so it's not one of the uh, more common parables that we know. Although when we hear it, we say to ourselves, oh, I've heard something like this, because there's other parables that are kind of more popular that have certain themes that, that this one does too. So um, anyways, this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's one, an interesting parable. I, uh, 
already included verse 39, though. I apologize. I, th- I think it's important. But, okay. Well, one of the things uh, that we do when we, we, we uh, read parables is we, you know, we find Jesus, we find ourselves in the parable. And after reading Kenneth Bailey, you know, it, it's sort of obvious. The, the master, well, how does, yes, the master... We're assuming the master of the house. Anybody leave Miss fans? Master of the house, keeper of the house. Okay, the master of the house here uh, is Jesus and these servants slash slaves um, are the disciples. And there's a, there's a house. Now, this is important because... Um, Kenneth Bailey kind of makes this known is that, you know, this thing is happening inside. So we have this banquet happening inside this house. And for us, as we listen to this story and who Jesus is talking to, we want to keep that, you know, in our forefront because we have Jesus talking to his disciples who are already in the house, which means that there are other people outside the house, all right, so we're talking in terms of discipleship and not so much in terms of, like, salvation or justification, although that's part of the story. But these, these servants are already inside the house. Okay, the reason why I bring that up is because, um, uh, well, I, I, had, I, had, I had some questions about this just in terms of, like, uh, one of the things when you read, read scripture is the biggest hurdle to overcome in reading the Bible or interpreting the Bible is what? Take a guess. Yeah, it's you. It's not really the Bible. The Bible is usually not the problem. Interpreting it is you and getting over yourself when you read the Bible. And so as we read a parable of master and servant, there is instantaneous, or even if you have a translation that uses the word slaves, we already have this cultural baggage when we come to this. Because I, I was thinking about in terms of good news and masters and servants, masters and slaves, and if it, and one of the things is the good news would be not for the master to to feed servants, but to what to the servants? No, set them free. I mean, at the end of the story, they're still slaves. They're like, well, what's going on there? That's not right. Although, you guys see, this is interesting. You guys are so influenced by the biblical story. That doesn't even register on your radar. However, I have a feeling that if you were to read this in a context of those who might be outside the house, that would be a fundamental question. I can't believe in the Bible. Talk about masters and slaves. I thought we were beyond that. This was to set people free. Well, this kind of actually comes to the point of what freedom means and also the terms of discipleship and authority. So you have these servants inside the house that, for all intents and purposes, appear to be joyful and expecting and ready and very uh, comfortable with what's going on in their life. Now, are they, have they been deranged, brainwashed to believe that this is a good place to be? Uh, no, actually not. And so this is something that uh, I think we need to kind of keep in our mind as we actually talk to people outside the house. Because if you're going to talk to somebody outside the house and say, hey, let's go inside the house and be a slave, hmm, that seems strange. 
Um, but when it comes to Christianity and Christian freedom, things are not always as they first appear. And that is, uh, comes out abundantly within the parable itself. So I have a few quotes from Martin Luther here uh, on, the, on the freedom of the Christian or uh, a short treatise on Christian liberty. And he starts out with this kind of paradox. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Well, those seem to be kind of contradictory statements, paradoxical statements, but actually they are true. And how they actually are manifested in the parable is in the master, not so much in the servants. So this is um, something that, yeah, so anyways, okay, so, and Luther has a very interesting, very helpful kind of image, and I'm not going to read that whole quote, is that for to understand Christian freedom is to understand Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because if you know the story, Adam obviously is created righteous and perfect, be what he's supposed to be. God takes him and puts him in the garden to do what? To tend it, to serve it. So already in the story of Scripture, freedom is actually defined in terms of service or servanthood. So that, that's something that needs to be in the back of our mind. Those works that Adam did in the garden were not to please God, um, because God was already pleased with him, and not to make him blessed, because he already was blessed, or blessed. But he was to do these works because that's what he was created to do, and serve well, I guess it would be Eve in this circumstance, or to serve even the, the land, not to get on that tangent. But, but Luther then ex- extrapolates from this in terms of neighbor. So lastly, we will, this is the last quote there, um, lastly, we will speak also of those works which he performs towards his neighbor. For man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body, in order to work on its account, but also for all men on earth. Nay, he lives only for others and not for himself. Which is, uh, so this is very helpful for me, and I asked Pastor Ruzik about this, and he's like, don't even talk about that. That's not even what it's about. But for me, I feel like i gotta, I got to bring this out. <laughs> the vicar said the same thing. He's like, but I, I find this very, very important because in kind of our uh, American society, freedom is always defined. Well, how is freedom defined for us? What's that? Not having any restrictions. Or doing whatever you want. To do. Doing whatever you want. And, 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 what's that? Well, okay, so slow down, though. That's, that's, hey, Carol, you got, you're always jumping ahead here. Slow down. So, but yeah, in terms of, so it comes out, I mean, you guys are actually probably, pretty, even, the, the, even your language has a little bit of a, a critique in it. But the idea is that, like, the notion of freedom is, like, individual rights. Like, I have individual rights, and no one can impose something upon me, but I'm free to make these decisions. Right. So now, this is, this is why I think it's so helpful for us. Because now you have individuals with certain rights that can't impose on each other. So, but do you actually have a real community? No. 
So this is, ve- this is very fascinating. You have a bunch of individuals sharing space, but not really living in, in communion with one another, or harmony, or however you want, unity, community, you know. Um, and so for, for us, as we read this parable now, between the master and the servant, what appears to be somewhat, uh, what, what could be understand in terms of cu- cultural baggage of master and servant as oppressive, at the end now actually turns to be quite freeing because you have a community that is now actually living, living together. And then how is that defined? Well, by sharing and, and service. So service is not, an, a servanthood is not oppressive, but it's actually liberating because it actually creates community. So um, th- that rubs up against kind of our, our American culture and even the fundamental, I shouldn't say the fundamental, the, 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 the kind of our underpinnings of, of society. So that's just, I just want to throw that out. I think it's, it's um, yeah, so Christian freedom is understood precisely in service as shown to us by the master in this parable. See, uh, this image is, is an is a image of a gracious God, but it's also an image of the Christian life. Um, yeah. Is it, is it a joy for working too? Oh, absolutely. So now, yeah, so if you use the Adam and Eve paradigm, I haven't really parsed all, that, all the, the ramifications of what that means, but um, so the idea of service in terms of Christian freedom is not oppressive, but actually joyful. Joyful meaning uh, living in the spot that God has meant for you to live. Because once you do, you're doing what God has created you to, to do, then joy springs forth. Because now you and God are working, working together in tandem. Um, which is a wonderful thing. Anyways, that, that, was, that was kind of going off in my head in the background, but that's probably a tangential point, but I think it's important. Lizzie? I was going to say, it's the way to coexist. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, it, yep. Well, actually, I, if you guys are, I, I dare say this, but if you're into, like, movies, um, uh, early George Lucas movie uh, with uh, Robert Duvall, it's a it's a it's a futuristic movie, science science fiction. Obviously, George Lucas, who made Star Wars. If you didn't know that, mm-hmm. um, I can't actually remember. It's like S F X eleven twenty six or something like that. It's a futuristic society where people. It, it's a utopian society where people literally just simply share space, and it, it's a fascinating thing. They have to take a uh, like a drug. Or something to keep them in line, and yeah, an inhibitor. And have you seen this movie? Do you know what it, 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 it was? I mean, okay, good. So, uh, so anyway, so this is. I mean, it's a great. I I actually really like this movie, although it it is a little cheesy and and somewhat. Well, Robert Duvall, man, he's a good actor. But anyways, there, there's the, the moment in the movie that is like most transitional and transformative is where Robert Duvall, so he shares space, and he shares space with a woman. So on the outside, it looks like they're living together, they're like married, and uh, they have a perfect life. Yeah, they literally are sharing space. They, they, I mean, it's kind of weird because 
Robert Duvall will do his thing, the woman will do her thing, but the woman decides to not take her inhibitor or misses her inhibitor for like one day and all of a sudden life comes to her. (laughs) And she does it again. And Robert Duvall then, uh, through this whole notion, then they actually start actually noticing each other and like actually... Uh, you know, love each other or fall in love. I mean, that's where kind of the cheesy bit comes in. But so Robert Duvall is is now actually uh, they're embracing each other, and in the back of his like it's it's monologue inner monologue going, and he gives this whole thing about how he's always he's not lived with this woman, but always just shared space with this woman. And I, I and I think it's it's a great critique on uh, kind of contemporary society. And, and kind of this individual rights because we don't understand the ramifications of what this means. So the lie is that we can uh, we can do what you know we can kind of have these individual rights without necessarily impacting on others. But then you also have people who say, well, you need to live in service for others, but that is done not from a stance of freedom, but you better do it because you know, global warming or, or some other threat that is going to, you know, cripple society or something. Yeah. yeah. Would it possibly be another move called 1984 by Eddie Huxley? No, 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 yeah. That's a different one, although that that's an interesting movie, too. Similar themes. That's more about, like... Uh, you know, government, controlling, yeah, controlling society. This is more about the existential reality. But anyways, okay, not to, okay, let's not talk about that anymore. I know I started it, but uh, let's stay on topic. Because, uh, yeah, it was more about uh, community, how, how, how the master, so the master who has this great authority gives up the authority, not, not gives up, but uses the authority in terms of service. So freedom, for because the, the master is completely free in this circumstance, and what does he do with this freedom? But yet he, he gives to his servants. So what happens is the master is actually a, a servant. Holly. Right. Um, Parousia, what's that mean? That sounds like a big word. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it was in the book. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did he define it? I actually don't remember. Is it in the book? Yes. Yes. The word is in the book, but they don't define it. I don't think. It's, it's, uh, it's this heavenly reality. It's, it's all good things. The, the point of everything. Yeah. Anyway, so I was thinking about pastors and like it's your choice and your freedom to serve us at the altar. As That's right. Church. And I never really, I never thought about it as you being a service to us. Right. Well, you know, I just thought it was like something you come to do because God gave you the rights to give it out. Right. Ooh, see, that's good. She's my wife. <laughs> now, this is very helpful because what uh, often people 
in the church view pastors as authoritative or, you know, tyrannical or somebody above them? Oh, yeah, on a pedestal. So they, they come to this relationship, not biblically speaking, but kind of how we talked about in terms of our cultural milieu. This guy's the boss. And bosses usually have to be viewed with suspicion because they're kind of out to get me or get something from me, make me work long hours, don't give me a raise when I really deserve it. Um, you know, all, all different kinds of things. But that, that's kind of the premise of our own society, that, that our, 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 uh, the individual, right, maintains that that's sacred. And anybody who's kind of an authority is always to be viewed with suspicion because they're trying to keep us, keep somebody down. So, but the pastor, according to the scripture, and according to using this parable as kind of a template, which is very true, but um, is, is actually the opposite. The pastor comes to serve and, and not be served. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of why you be a pastor. That's right. So, so you have, well, it's called the divine service. Divine meaning God, service, serving us, serving us. Now, this is the, this is the great, I feel like this is a great danger from where we are. Because Kenneth Bailey says, this is a great reversal of reality or, or something like that. Yet, if I come into the situation with suspicion towards the master and him becoming a servant, I see that as an injustice making being made right because this guy shouldn't be a master because there, there should be no masters. So a little part of us actually believes we what? Deserve it. Deserve this, this now. Yeah, they should be serving me. If you, if, if in, our, in our American culture, the individual is prime, right? We, it's a very, when I say sacred, I mean it's something that we protect. And the individual, uh, if there is an uh, a unbalanced relationship, so we have someone in authority. I shouldn't even use the word in power because we always understand authority in terms of power here in the United States. They actually, because of the individual, don't carry authority, but I do because I'm the one who has the individual rights. So if they come and serve me, now they're making, they're making something that was wrong. They're balancing it out. They're making it right. So think about it in terms of the, the cultural baggage of master and slave. There should not be any slaves, this is what the you know this is what we fought the civil war over. So we have an unjust relationship from the beginning, and the only way to make that just is by getting rid of it. And so we have now here what is unjust being made right, and being made right now I see the slave. If you are a slave. You are what? You're a victim that needs to be made right. So, um, the only reason I bring this up is because I, I, I've been confronted with, with people who've asked this question. You know, the Bible talks about slavery. 
And how come that's, how can that be tolerated? So we have Rachel, yeah. But is voluntary servanthood versus... All right, so, so you actually have a, you have a fundamental misnomer going on here. That this relationship of master and servant, or slave, because if you define it according to your own perspective, you're already starting out on the wrong foot, and you will end up on the wrong foot. But if you understand it biblically, because what we find out now is that the master isn't making a wrong relationship right, but is actually fulfilling what his relationship actually is as master. This master is not making a wrong right, but is actually doing what the masters do, and that is serve. So do you understand that? So this is actually something not making a wrong right. This isn't a wrong relationship, master-servant. It's just that we completely misunderstand master and servant because when we understand a master, we understand it in terms of power, that I can make the servants do whatever I want. But as Christ understands master, he understands it precisely in servanthood, who, according to Philippians chapter 2, though he was God, he took on the form of a servant, even dying on the cross. So that actually relationship is misnomered, I'm sorry, is, is misunderstood. So master, Lord of all, this goes back to the Luther quote, yeah, the Christian man is free, Lord of all. That's right, absolutely right. But what does that Lord of all do with his freedom? He serves. Yeah. So, um, so the relationship is not a bad one because we understand the master or Lord of all precisely in service because that's what Jesus does. Okay, but why, why do we... Okay, I don't want to confront that, but... CEO's pay has grown dramatically. So that, that is true, but that's actually not true. Well, <laughs> it's not a reality. Yeah, but you're understanding that as a Christian. But the business world is, is, is uh, wrought out in tooth and nail. Is, 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 absolutely. So that, that would, you would beg the question... Why aren't things more even? Okay, good. So that is wrong. So that needs something needs to be eradicated. Yes. Pastor, I, I think uh, what what um, I grew up that our pastor was very um, a respect person, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and now in the society I see more and more that um, the respect for each other mm-hmm. is dem- is uh, diminished. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think um, I accept a master, you know, and, and just the same, the pastor, mm-hmm. and as a, as a person and teacher and uh, um, an example. And uh, so um, I don't see it, <laughs> naturally you say as a servant, but I don't see you as a servant in this way. You see me as a master. Yeah. <laughs> a nice master. <laughs> a, a servant master, which goes to Carol's point. Now, Carol, I, I, I actually I understand completely what you're saying, and I've actually read those business uh, leadership magazines and all that. It, it's one of those things where th- this is, in an ideal world, that would work out. But I, 
I mean, when you read when you read the business section, it is if a company's failing, somebody comes and buys it out and makes it makes money by yeah by cutting cutting costs, laying off, and so we have these. Now, of course, somebody would say that's you know in the long run that's going to make the the business better, and yeah, it could be true. I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of the risk that you take. But but the 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 one of the one of my fundamental questions about about how how that works is that the CEO pay of of businesses is so much more than the average worker that I just I don't think it's true. I just don't think it's real. I mean I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely not. So and, and one would have to ask, can you actually run a business in our Society, American society, maybe world, world. Uh, I'm not sure, but actually, as a, as a, as like the Garden of Eden. I, mean, it's terrible. I don't know. Right. Yep. Right. That's right. So we understand it in terms of the Garden of Eden and right relationship with God from the, from the start. So we don't understand that as people outside, well, according to the parable, outside the house. Yeah. Well, look what happens if, when, if you try living within the house, like at Chick-fil-A or, or Hobby Lobby, they're constantly getting bombarded by people outside of the house. About That's how right. To run their business how, to run, how to run their business. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, right. So, so there, there is maybe hope that it could actually work out. No, that's, that's good. Um, there's some questions over here. Lindsay. Nice. Man, I got I to gotta start watching this. No, I've, I, I, haven't, I have only watched the first episode ever, and uh, you, I think that's interesting. That's, that's really cool, actually. Interesting. Hmm. Oh yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, it's the same with the Bible. Trust me, you can get lost in the weird details of the Bible too. Um, yes, Carol. Right. Well, yeah, exactly, and that's the point. There is no end. Right. Well, that that's, it goes back to what I originally brought up in the beginning. Yeah. But who are they following? They're following the master. So that 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 maybe that is related to what Lindsay just said is that see with the servants. So if you have a master who's a servant, then there is really no other life for you as a servant but to be a servant. I mean, and and that's where. Rather than seeing this as a, a making wrongs right, we see this as a, a, a what uh, Chris had said earlier, the joyfulness of what it means to serve servants. So the master, he gets great joy being a servant. And so, so it, but he still is a master, though. That's right. He still is, is the, but he's, he's, he's uh, the master precisely by being the number one servant, in a sense. 
Example, yeah, well, exactly. So then, so as we pr- approach this parable, as Christians, we see ourselves as being the servant, but we can also see ourselves being the master in terms of example. So the master is Jesus, that's right, the one who's loved unconditionally, grace, alone, all that stuff. But at the same time, the master is an example for us to live. Holly. Right. Right. That's very important. Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, Holly, maybe I got to say something real quick too. Is that the wrong making wrong right? Obviously, if we've all attended Bible study in the last few years, we've heard that a lot. Um, in this parable kind of extrapolating where are the wrongs made right in the parable. It's kind of, it's hidden. It would be bringing those from the outside inside. That's making the wrong right. Is that, this? there, there shouldn't be anybody on the outside. There should be, everyone should be on the inside. But once you're on the inside, this is, now this is what Holly was saying, is that once you're on the inside, because once you're inside, you're blessed. You've been, you're, you're blessed because you're inside, not because of what you did or what you're doing. You're just, yeah, you're already blessed. You're, you're there. And when you are blessed, then how does one who lives, who's blessed in, in service? Great joy. So, okay, so now let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the biblical perspective that Bailey gets to and kind of the, the, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper perspective. Because um, that's all in there, right? I mean... Any meal that pops up in the Gospels, we should say, hey, does this remind us of the Lord's Supper? Um, Because pretty much every meal does in the Gospels. Yeah, you you know, this is, well, okay, anyways. Got another movie reference, but I won't bring that up. (laughs) Has anybody seen Babette's Feast? Yeah. Uh, Or The Jesus of Montreal? Yeah, Jesus of Montreal, I love that movie. Um, there is a very, yeah, it, it, it's very offensive for some people. For me, I, I loved it. It was, it was great, but anyways, okay. So there's Babbitt's Feast, kind of obvious, feasting. It's, it's, it's filled with uh, Eucharistic undertones. Okay, check it out. It's subtitled. <laughs> I think I think I think it won Academy Award for the best foreign film. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Okay. All right. So so yeah. So the divine service now. So we have we have this Lord's Supper uh, perspective. Uh, the Lord's Supper was on the night when Jesus was betrayed. This this meal in the parable takes place at night. You have. Um, uh, well, you have the Passover in the background of this meal. Because you have the, uh, well, it says dressed for action, but it's gird up your loins, just like the Passover. They were supposed to gird up their loins. That's why we wear a, a belt with our cassock. We have the white thing over our cassock, but anyways. Uh, let's not talk about that. Okay, so the, we, yeah, you gird up your loins. Uh, you get ready for action. You have the lamps. Now, lamps in, in the Passover are, are also part of it because um, 
the midrash, which, you know, we don't know exactly if this would have been in time, around Jesus' time, but it would have been close to it, was, uh, you know, people, because you can't have any leaven, yes, you know, yeast in the, the house, so you would use your lamp to go around, and you got to keep it burning all night. Um, uh, oh, and then, exit, I, I, I wrote it down, though, right? Yes, Exodus 12. So they're watching for the Lord to come. You have these slaves, you know, they're waiting for the angel of the Lord, the Lord to come. So you have this expectation going on in the Passover also. Uh, Now, this is one thing that was just kind of a tidbit that I found that I'm not, I just make it. uh, At the time of Jesus, people did sit for meals like we do, not always reclined. Uh, Reclining was kind of reserved for kind of special things. And so um, while the first exodus was eaten standing up, the rest of the Passovers were probably eaten reclining. So, So you have all these, so you have this exodus motif happening in the parable. The exodus or Passover motif now is actually part of the Last Supper because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during Passover. Um, so you have all these, these uh, uh, themes coming now, and that um, salvation, new life, uh, obviously bread or flesh and blood, all that stuff goes with the, the elements of the Lord's Supper. But you have all this happening in the background but you have to ask yourself, what was the Passover for? And most people think in an abstract, set them free. But does anybody know exactly what they were needed to be set free to do? In Exodus, I'm saying. To worship God. To worship God, that's right. They need Because the original question from Moses to the Pharaoh was, hey, can we, can we take a three days journey and go worship God out in the desert? Can't do it here. And that was in respect for the Egyptians, because if God came down in an unholy place... Zap all the unholy people. So it was to worship God. Now, that's kind of hard for us to understand because uh, get to Mount Sinai eventually, and what? How, how, how is worshiping God? What does that look like? It's kind of it's kind of a trick question. Ten Commandments. So how did the Ten Commandments happen? Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. That's why we usually get right to the tabernacle. But before the tabernacle, Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain and speaks to his people directly. Only time in the Old Testament. Skate out of the wits. But God comes down and serves his word. Moses goes into the cloud or into the darkness where God was. And Moses, or God's like, okay, this is how it's going to work. So the first thing mentioned after the Ten Commandments, does anybody know? Very important. Altar. The altar is mentioned. So all all of a sudden God is saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come down on the altar. And then from the altar, uh, you got to think Old Testament-wise. I know we use the same word for what happens in the nave, but think Old Testament. So I'm going to come down on this altar and from that altar, then you have a life to live, which means accepting aliens and to caring for the, 
the, the motherless and the widows and all this strange stuff that we can't really understand because it takes place in a society that is very different than us. So you have all these weird rules about animals, and if your animal, if you accidentally kill somebody else's animal, then you got to do, you know, you got to take care of it, restitution, and all that stuff. But it starts with altar, has life. Of course, Moses never really makes it down the mountain, right, with all this because the golden calf comes about. But then after that, God then reinstitutes this life together, altar, tabernacle, life together. So when Jesus now, in the Last Supper, God, God with his people, giving them something to eat, and by this, that same example, giving them a life to live. So, so in the Old Testament, in the altar, people sacrificed animals. I don't know if you know this, but people actually ate the meat. And they didn't drink the blood, because that was bad. It was animal's blood. But when Jesus says, drink my blood, the disciples realize that this isn't an animal or a human, but this is actually God's blood, which is his life. So when they drink the blood, they have God's life to live, which mimics everything that happened in Exodus 2. Also, Exodus also. So we have now the master who serves his servants, giving them great gifts, great joy, but at the same time giving them a life to live, an example to live. Jesus now in the Eucharist gives them great gifts, small catechism, forgiveness of sins, where the forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. That life is the life that's precisely poured into you from the blood, which is God's itself. So God's life is seen in Jesus serving his masters, or his servants, which would echo a variety of texts in the Gospels. Mark chapter 10, um, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So um, anyways, so you have all this wonderful stuff going on in the parable that's very applicable to us because as we go to, as we go to the divine service, we actually have to understand that the divine service is actually drawing us. God is beckoning us coming, inviting us in the house. Once we're in the house, when we are positioned as we do the invocation is one of waiting, but not passively waiting, like Bailey says, but one of expectation. We're expecting God to show up. We're waiting for him to show up, excited. Like, I think we talked about how kids, you know, wait for Santa Claus to come Um, anyways, uh, so, so as we enter into church then, we wait very excitedly for Christ to come with his gifts, and then he shows up with his gifts, his gospel, in baptism, preached word, absolution, the Lord's Supper, prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it's a great gift. I mean, everything, a lot of, all of it, it's all good things that happen in church, but it, the last bit, though, is that not only are these like forgiveness sins isolated things, but they actually form then the life now we live outside or as Christians. That 
life of freedom, giving gifts, giving ourselves, because then we live uh, out in the world as, as Paul would say, living sacrifices. So I think, I think it's all in there. I, I think Kenneth Bailey talked about that. I don't know. There's a bunch of other stuff in there, but that's probably the most important stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so you, yeah, that's a second or third step down the line how you get to that. Because if the, um, if, if the, if the, okay, so, so you have this master who, who, who leaves the wedding banquet or withdraws. Whose wedding banquet is that? We don't know. But the wedding banquets that are mentioned in Scripture usually are related to the heavenly, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the marriage feast of the Lamb is echoed in the theology of the Lord's Supper. It's, it, that guy was Mata Elamakaya or something like that, right? There's a, M words, right? Okay. So, so he gets to, now, if the theology of the Lord's Supper is, is part of this parable, then it's the body and blood. It's the master serving his... his uh, his own body and blood, like Jesus. Yeah, he's hard to commit. I mean, he's not. Well, first of all, he, you know, I don't know what his theology is, but I mean, he just he might not be Lutheran. Yeah. So at least you know, at least he hints to it. That's nice. Yes. Absolutely. Very strong. Just like Babbitt's Feast. The Parousia? Yep. Yeah, there's the eschatological kind of reality. And if you were to read Luke chapter 12 and 13, I, I, I know that off the top of my head, um, you would already have that frame of mind where Jesus is already talking about end times, like his second coming. So that would already be part of your frame of reference when you actually read this parable, that Jesus is talking as much about the Exodus, the Lord's Supper. He would also be talking about his second coming, which would have been then related to Revelation chapter 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that would also bring up Old Testament. I wrote the Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 as a Old Testament reference in the back of the mind too. All right, we, we, let's pray, and if you guys want to hang out, but the Wheaton College girls have to get off to school. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.